What if we dare to envision a future that is not defined solely by technological innovation, but rather by joy? In this episode of Humans Now and Then, I speak to Rod Banner, CEO of the company 3LA and founder of the JoyTech Project, about the dawn of partnerism, the benefits of striving for a more joyful world, and how the leadership of the future can help get us there. I sense that we should look much more closely at how everything is led political parties, countries, and large corporations. Rod Banner is a relentlessly forward-thinking entrepreneur who is laser-focused on the actual architecture of businesses, their culture, and their core value propositions. His consulting firm, 3LA.com, has created a phenomenal team of luminaries to optimize proposition architecture, brand and business design, and marketing performance. But his passion project is joytech.org, a growing company exploring how tech can bring more joy to the world. So, ready to explore how we can work together to create a more joyful future? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Rod Banner, thank you for joining me. Well, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So we had a great conversation a few weeks back on many topics, but one of the interesting topics we talked about is an interesting project called JoyTech. And along with JoyTech, you have mentioned this interesting concept in relation to partnerism. Tell me a little bit more about partnerism. Well, we live in a very turbulent time, not just because of the pandemic, I think that prior to the pandemic, there was a sense that the ever-increasing speed that society was running at was becoming almost too much for many people. And to some extent, enforced lockdowns have helped people to reflect a little bit on how they have been living their lives and potentially how they'd like to live their lives in the future. I, I sense that that's brought questions to the fore with regard to the way we're governed, the way that we may be damaging the environment in which we live. Many of these things which which have been in our conscious minds, but not necessarily affecting the way that we've actually lived. So partnerism is a new approach to the way we might run our societies. And it moves away from the traditional, more usual formula that's largely been driven by econometrics. If you look back in the Western world for over the last 25, maybe 50 years, our focus has been often around how we can reduce the cost of things, how we can cut costs uh, that seem to be ever escalating in order to find sufficient funds to do things which we consider to be crucial, important, fundamental to the way that society runs. And To many, that's been fine, although to others, I think there's a sense of gloom, a sense of loss. And if there were any particular trends, I would suggest that we've neglected to fund our caring professions, and that's probably because we don't necessarily appreciate how relevant they are to the rich tapestry of society. If, for example, you cut care, and that can stretch from health provision education, 
many of the things that sit between looking after our children and our neighbors. What tends to happen is that society starts to fracture. There's increasing numbers of people suffering from mental illness. And therefore, we live in a society that feels a little bit more threatening, potentially. And at the same time, we would then pour more money into policing. And I think recently, with the Black Lives Matter movement, we've seen so much of the militarization of police rather than the police just caring for society and maintaining the rule of law. We see people who seem to be at war with the very people who fund them. Well, partnerism looks at this from a different perspective. What it's saying is that if we care for people, if we look after people, if we make sure that they're not starving and having to be reliant on food banks just to nourish themselves, if we give them sufficient education that they won't be so polarized and prejudicial and split into factions, if we simply find them places to live and look after their health care and, and health care provision, the chances are society will run more smoothly and therefore policing will not be so large a, a cost burden to society. Probably the best examples are those seen in Northern Europe. If you look at Norway and Sweden particularly, the tax take is higher. But on the other hand, people are very happy with what that tax is actually buying for them. They have a very high standard of education, of healthcare and housing stock. So the deal seems fair. Whereas I think in the Western world, people try to avoid tax because they don't seem to feel that they get much out of it. If you recut the whole cake and start thinking that we look after people in our society, the chances are we'll get more out of the community and the exchange that we have with a broad range of people from different backgrounds with different kinds of experience. That's absolutely fascinating to think about. First of all, what you just described was the recipe for innovation, right? So answering the hard problems in the world by bringing different people with different backgrounds and different perspectives together to solve those problems. But what's really interesting, and when you think about kind of pivoting away from the old normals, people might call it, or the old way of doing business, understanding we need to do something different. For many years, organizations focused on profitability. For many years, society focused on control because those are things that make us feel safe. Those are things that make us feel like we're successful. But what's really interesting is when you talk about those aspects of caring for society, human connection, working together, those are the things that usually bring solutions to the most difficult problems we face. Mm. It's so true. It's a source of grave concern to me that we see countries isolating, putting up walls, withdrawing, and not recognizing that the real problems, the ones that are actually going to impact the whole world, are things which we can only fix if the whole world is brought together. We can't fix the climate crisis just from one state. We have to look beyond the boundaries of the country. Everyone has to fix the climate crisis, and everyone has to understand the crucial nature of that particular problem. 
So I, I think you're right. We we need to work more closely together. We need to understand that sometimes solutions come with a cost that might not be ideal or might not be something that we necessarily want to pay. But on the other hand, if we don't fix some of these really big and hairy problems, there won't be a future for anybody. Mm, right. That is something that comes with great meaning and great purpose for people to get involved in when I talk about shaping the future. There are some problems that we face in society or as a human race that are grave in nature. Having more people involved in those solutions, they do lead to better outcomes potentially for us in the future. Uh, but it also leads to a lot of awareness. And I think that's one of the things that if the global pandemic has done anything, it's been a little bit of a wake-up call that the world around us is more, maybe more complex than we realized, maybe more fragile than we realized. And potentially for some people, maybe there's more that we can individually do to take the initiative to reach out to find other people who have common values or common missions in life and work together towards those better outcomes. I couldn't agree with you more. From my perspective too, I think that the pandemic has proved, if it needed to be proved, that politics is no longer glib sound bites. You can't run a country with a clever catchphrase. There's a lot of deeply complex, interwoven challenges that society is confronting, and they're not partisan. I mean, education should not be partisan. It's something that everybody should rally around. It should be cross-party, and so should the environment. I find it fascinating that people play with these fundamental and crucial things as though they were footballs. So I sense that we should look much more closely at how everything is led, political parties, countries, and large corporations. And I think you touched on something that is another fundamental change that we are seeing. I'm really enjoying, actually. And that is a challenge to the old accepted wisdom that you run a company specifically to enrich the shareholders. Well, I think even the shareholders are recognizing that they don't want to be part of a money-making machine that has a very low opinion of its role in society outside making money. So there is an environmental footprint that most companies should take responsibility for. There are duties of care to the people that those companies employ. You shouldn't be looking at people in, yeah, I think the word human resources is so odious. People give a very large proportion of their lives to their work. And often they give a very large proportion of their working life to an organization. Uh, if an organization simply looks at their responsibilities in terms of a financial commitment rather than the deeper and much more meaningful sense of family and community that companies engender, I think they're missing massive opportunity as well as a, a degree of responsibility. Right. When you talk about, yeah, the human resources aspect or thinking about people as resources or in some instances as replaceable. You're missing out on that opportunity to leverage people's full strengths and natural abilities, but also 
one of the things that I think has become more evident for many companies as work and life boundaries have become more blurred for many people. And as people have dealt with different types of family issues and stresses and so forth, people's values are starting to bubble to the surface. Yeah. And organizations that are not respectful of the values of the people that they employ or not aware of how values are shifting in society when you look at younger generations coming into the workforce and how their values will shape where they choose to work and how they choose to work, I think that's potentially a big miss. And then also that point about purpose, which you kind of wove in there a little bit, the importance of thinking about what's your purpose in your work. Huge. And what are the outcomes you're trying to achieve? And what difference is that going to make in the world? I think that one of the challenges around remote working, particularly, where it's very difficult to supervise somebody in an old school fashion, if you don't see where they're working and you don't see them looking at least like they're working, but you periodically pick them up on a Zoom call. That sense of devotion to the company project, I think in part, you can sense it if you know that individual and you know that individual's value structure and how committed they are to the organization. On the other hand, if you've just recruited them online, you might find that a bit of a mystery. You you might not sense that you know those people sufficiently well. And We often talk about culture in a remote working environment. Well, the one thing that seems to come up time after time is shared values, the sense of a clear corporate purpose, a kind of set of behaviors that people sign up to and agree to adopt themselves. I think that builds a remote working culture. So actually, who cares when people do the work that needs to get done? But I think what is much more important is the sense that you don't have to manage their everyday movements. You just simply trust those people to do what's required and take the responsibility themselves. Well, I think there are many companies that one sees in the public eye that don't seem to have any ethical frameworks, and they don't take those responsibilities seriously themselves. And luckily, I think the tide has turned against companies with no ethical boundaries and a lack of clarity around policy. I think that, however, this means we will be investing in organizations that are not geared specifically to maximize shareholder returns from a profit perspective. Some of those shareholders' returns might come from other areas of the company's endeavor. It could well be that they take on environmental responsibilities, not simply to have a zero environmental footprint, but perhaps go the opposite way to cleaning up the world in which we live. Or, you know, my personal passion, the the thing that you identified me with earlier on, the Joytech initiative, this was really driven by the fact that the tech industry is the most innovative and the richest industry in our contemporary lives. But in most cases, the companies at the forefront of that industry are really marketing tools. They are trying to sell us things which we, in some cases, didn't even know we needed. They're not focused on improving the state of human joy or doing something useful to better society. They're simply driving more 
of the capitalist ideals, which I'm not trying to decry. I don't think they're the exclusive goals for society. And so Joytech was really around the core principle that if we could get the tech industry to focus on improving, maximizing, increasing human joy or the joy capital of society, then they would be doing something really worthwhile. And I don't think it would cost them a huge amount to do. I sense that being locked up and being part of the fortunate ones who've been still happy to to be locked up in the pandemic world have had more time to reflect on what brings them joy. And in, in many cases, you've seen very simple things uh, that people have done in their droves, like make sourdough bread. Sewing machine sales have gone off the charts. I mean, I'm not sure that people are making surgical masks or they're just making things for the sheer joy of doing it. But I think handicrafts <laughs> seem to have peaked in a way that they hadn't since the 1950s. I don't think that's bad. Oh, there's huge benefits to any level of creativity or finding those outlets that give you energy, whatever that might be, leads to better ability to problem solve. As you mentioned, it brings some level of joy to life. It brings you energy. It helps contribute to factors of success, whatever success looks like for you. So I think there, you're right. There's a lot of benefit in thinking about things outside of your maybe day-to-day -day work or outside of your you know things that you want to change in the world that are just personal, joyful activities that you can undertake. But I think one of the really interesting things that you talked about too is tech industry's uh, tendency to think about what's the next thing that might be binge-worthy or what's the next thing we can get somebody hooked on because there's a level of profitability associated with that. Is there an opportunity now when people are really seeking for different answers? Because people are seeking for different ways of doing things. People are seeking for different ways to feel fulfilled. They're realizing more and more that the way that we lived previous to the pandemic in particular, it wasn't really working then, which we kind of knew. Now it's just kind of that awareness has been amplified. And now people are looking for different levels of solution, whether it be their jobs or their businesses have been disrupted in a way that forced them into a new normal or forced them in a new direction. They're seeking for answers. They're seeking, seeking a way to move forward, seeking a way to find fulfillment, joy, a direction. Is there an opportunity for tech companies to consider offering, if they're going to offer solutions that we can't think of ourselves, to offer solutions that could solve that problem for people beyond uh, the profitability or the flash. To be honest, I, I don't have the answer. I don't know if they can, but I think all my engagements with tech industry, and I've probably worked with the tech industry for longer than many of your listeners have been on the planet, uh, you know, since before the internet was even born. The tech industry has always been probably the sharpest, the most intelligent, and the most agile industry in all of industry. You tend to find the sharpest minds gravitate towards it simply because it's where money is still being made at a rate that's far greater than in conventional industry. So you've got very sharp people. You've got intense interest in potential investments so you've got a huge amount of money funding opportunities you know one thing that people forget with governments around the world printing more and more money 
actually, there has never been more money than there is right now to invest in new. And I think that's one of the most fascinating dynamics around this potential catastrophe. I think there will be many industries that we've grown to love and just considered to be part of our everyday experience that will be incredibly tested by the next year, maybe two years, until we've learned to live with the pandemic or or we've managed to find a way of curing it. But I don't think that retail, for example, is something that's ever going to recover. I think that the idea of going back to normal is something that we should just forget about because there is no normal. There's going to be a revolution in how we buy physical products that will be driven by what's happened over the last six to nine months and over the next six to nine months. So how will that change society? How will our coming together to experience entertainment or eating in restaurants, how will these things resolve themselves in the future? I don't know. But what I do know is that there are lots of innovative minds and a lot of money to come together around whatever new ideas are created to solve those problems. So whilst we're going to see destruction, I think we're going to see the birth of amazing new things uh, that we had no idea about six months ago. Oh, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I just had this kind of vision in my head when you were talking through that of this phoenix rising from the ashes. And maybe that's something we start to experience over the next uh, couple of years, something completely different, realize that this is a fundamentally different direction. Because I don't know how we leave this time without something completely different than what we had, given the level of disruption that we've experienced. It has shifted entire industries. It has collapsed some industries. It has bolstered some industries. It has changed our behaviors. Their patterns of behaviors have changed significantly. And the longer that those changes in behavior persist, the more established that they become. It's, it's really interesting to think about how we move forward. And one of the things that kind of sticks in my mind, I know it's a little bit of a different direction, but I know it's also an area of expertise you have. I think a lot about the trends in marketing. Because pre-pandemic, and even now, I feel like there's a lot of marketing messages that we receive. Some of it is because of, I don't know if it's maybe just desperation because businesses are struggling, but we're getting a lot of marketing messages from many angles, from social media, from email, from billboards. We get hundreds of marketing messages in one way or another every single day. How do you think that this current time is shifting the worlds of marketing or what types of opportunities do you see for marketing in the future? Wow. Now, this is a huge topic and one that I guess I could warble on for uh, for hours about. I guess marketing has been the cornerstone of my career and we've seen massive changes in the way marketing has been done. Social media most definitely was a fundamental change, largely because It stopped the more didactic, top-down, the traditional advertising message that would shout at you 
and turned the world into a sort of bubbling cauldron of information and insight. So we could now target people more specifically. And it was also possible that anybody who was a consumer could have some sort of a voice. For those of you who are professional marketers, you probably know that there's been a rule. Some rules always seem to persist. It's a bit like Moore's law, but the rule that I don't think it's got a name, but it's the 1990, where 1% of humanity is contributing to social media, 9% of that same sample is commenting, and the other 90% is consuming. But actually, the 1% that's contributing has become fabulously powerful. The idea of people who are sort of tastemakers and style makers who simply because of their cool lifestyle or a desirable lifestyle, even if it's fatuous and made up in Photoshop, people follow not only what they get up to, but the things that they buy. And then the comment, the commentary around those products and services. If the products and services are good, then they're amplified. If they're not that good, then they can be destroyed. So we've got into a world where there's much more participation in the way marketing messages, sales messages are are shared. And the media largely have become less and less relevant. That's one of the reasons why they think they've become much more uh, aggressive in their news coverage and probably more contentious in how they report pretty much everything. But there is a sense that C19 was a bit like pressing the reset button on everything. I'm sure any marketers in the audience will be familiar with the term demand generation. It's one of the things that marketers always seem to go in for. If I can generate demand for my product or service, then I've done a good job marketing. Realistically, if everyone's trying to generate demand, where is that demand going to come from? when the world is over-messaged and saturated with marketing messages, it doesn't really come from anywhere except, obviously, either competition or, as has been going on quite a lot, and there's a lot of science behind this, people are so completely befuddled by the choices that are available to them, even if they have a desire to buy some particular product or service, they just can't make their mind up as to whose or which one to buy. So you're seeing people who should change wireless carriers, looking at the terms and conditions and just sticking with the one they had. You're seeing people confused around what they should be eating, which diet to follow. This too much information For anyone who's trying to lead their life as well as effectively do a sort of scientific study of what to consume. So I would say where marketing is changing and where it needs to change is to recognize that a customer is a very valuable resource. Rather than look at customer lifetime values, as many vendors do, as a kind of metric they should start to consider customer lifetime value as meaning precisely that. I get a customer, I want to keep them for as long as they've got a pulse. 
And that requires a lot of diligent understanding, forensic understanding of what the customer is trying to get done and what the pressures are in that customer's life that you could potentially alleviate. So I think this isn't unlike the conversation that we just had. People want to be understood by the companies that they're paying money to. And they want to feel that that company is on their side rather than on the side of the shareholders. Funnily enough, if you have a cell phone and you have a contract with the cellular provider, the chances are you will have a renewal contract price, which is probably about the same as it was last year. But if you go and shop around and you look at a new one, a new contract with another provider, they'll be able to undercut what you're paying right now because there is an acquisition discount. The fresh company will want your business and they'll incent you to leave your incumbent provider. Now, this is crazy because the discounts should go to the people who've been with you already. That's fairly obvious because the the cost of retention, if you like, and maintaining an ongoing relationship is less than cost of acquisition. That's about caring. And that's about partnerism. It's about the sense that I'm working with an organization that's both on my side, that cares about my future, and that's going to be there for me over the long haul. It's very unusual to find organizations that think that way. Right. It's almost as if they have discounted or forgotten human nature. Well, you can see why, because meanwhile, the shareholders are looking at their performance and the shareholders are looking at their performance through a very uh, metric-driven portal. <laughs> They're saying, well, we need, more, we need more customers because if we have more customers, the chances are we're going to have greater revenues. And if we have greater revenues, over time, we'll be able to make more money out of those relationships. Well, all of these metrics are fine if you discount the fact that human beings are not machines and they want to feel special. They want to feel loved. They want to feel they have a relationship with somebody who cares about them. It's, it's not that difficult. So I guess where this plays into marketing is you have to have much longer views of customer acquisition and retention, not just looking at how you can make the quarters numbers, but to say, this is the stuff that we're doing. We're going to talk to customers to make sure that that's the stuff that they want us to be doing. We're going to care about our customers in such a way that we can guarantee they can't see anybody who's going to care about them any more. I think it's a bit like family, isn't it? If you look at a parent, in spite of the human frailties of being a parent, whatever happens, your mother or your father will be your mother and your father forever. And I think that the reason that we forgive our parents if they do anything wrong is because we know, underlying all their failings, that their love for us is resilient, robust. And I, I, I think that is, <laughs> I know this is a bit of a stretch to say that's the future of marketing, but I, actually I don't think it's that difficult going back to having a, an ethical framework that says you know, we really do care about our customers rather than we claim to care about our customers. Yeah. And I think people can feel the difference 
And one of the things I think that was also interesting in what you were talking about is, you know, the metrics that are tracked in relation to shareholders. As many people in business know, what gets tracked through metrics and what gets rewarded are the things that get done. Correct. And if we're focusing on how many customers do we have, how many customers did we get, not necessarily what is behind the thing that leads to dedicated customers, customers that are um, faithful, customers that believe that you have their back, customers that will stay on board through thick or thin is a tremendous difference. And so that might lead to some level of desperation in marketing that we start to see that I mentioned a little bit earlier, is that customers feel desperation when it's happening. And it doesn't feel like you care about me. It feels like you want my money. (laughs) That isn't going to create an environment where I trust that company to take care of my needs. I want to feel like I have a company. And then some of it, this is really where where am I going to put my money? I'm going to put my money where I get the most value back for what I need, as you mentioned before. And I think um, maybe uh, a lot of organizations need to think differently about the metrics that they track and reward and the outcomes they're actually trying to achieve. I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, funnily enough, you, if you go back to the probably the, the high watermark of advertising industry, the sort of Mad Men era, if you imagine uh, it could be any consumer product, but let's just take uh, let's take an alcoholic brand, you, know, you, you could create a slogan and some packaging, and you could make a, a fairly good case that if a consumer were to buy that, they were buying into a lifestyle. And somehow the brand itself would improve the lifestyle of the consumer. I'm not too sure that those brands exist in the way that they did. I think what happens now is we see figures in society, sports people, models, writers, actors, and we see them living a life that we would somehow like to live. And we look at what they surround themselves with and we follow their lead. Interestingly, I don't see people in business in those roles of archetypes, nor do I see politicians largely. I mean, there are some exceptions. But without either business people or politicians wanting to lead a new direction for society, I don't think society is going to change. I mean, I suppose there's there's still the Elon Musks and one or two characters that stand out as people who want to go and break molds and come up with new ideas. Uh, Some people like people like that. I, I personally do, even if I don't necessarily like all their ideas. But I I think we're seeing a, a sort of gap where visionary leadership is absent and we need something to cling to. So whilst you and I have both said there is no normal and whatever the future holds, it's going to be exciting, vibrant, and new. The missing piece right now is what's it going to look like? (laughs) And I think in the past, marketers used to have that vision. They used to say, this is what our brand is going to bring to you and your life. And it's going to be new and different and exciting, but trust us, we have your best interests at heart. Well, I think today, in the Western world particularly, most of us have got a fairly clouded view 
of the relationship we have with organizations. And we think that if they come up with that kind of messaging, they're more likely to be sort of getting us to sign terms and conditions which we never read and fall into a trap that we hadn't seen coming that's not going to work out in our best interests. That's just tragic and sad. And if companies can figure out how they can somehow change that dialogue and become trusted in, in a new way, I think they, they'll be there. They'll be absolutely killing it because people don't care what they buy from a trusted source. I was thinking about this the other day. If you really do believe in an organization and you feel loyal toward them and you feel that they haven't shafted you in the past, if they move into services, even services which are slightly adjacent to the ones that you're familiar with, so long as you feel that bond of trust, the chances are you'll probably buy those services from that company. I see that as being the future where we consolidate the relationships we have with with supplier, vendor companies, and we buy from less or we engage with less, and everyone moves much more towards that sort of subscription model, and the, they're subscribing to a better life or a better lifestyle. <laughs> Right. I think that approach certainly lowers the level of complexity that people face, as you kind of mentioned before. And I think that's one of the risks that we almost fall into with so many companies being very niche and having very narrow focus is that when there's so many of them, that means so many different interactions that we need to have to have various needs met or collection of needs met. Yeah. Um, and all of those different various interactions add complexity to our lives. Yeah, exactly. And we just don't need any more. No. <laughs> I've got enough, thank you. <laughs> I will reduce my level of complexity, not enhance it. So I think a lot of people are feeling that certainly now, maybe more than ever. Exactly. But one of the things I know you talked about some levels of concern that you had in relation to society and helping push people towards you know, solving these big problems, working together and thinking differently about how we create joy or how we create a better existence for people. And one of the things you also just weaved into that last answer is some glimmer of hope and a little bit of optimism about what the future might hold. So if it were up to Rod, (laughs) what would we have to look forward to in the future? Well, I suppose Joytech for me started out, it's about three years old, joytech.org. It started out because I had a niece who suffered from a mental health problem. And unfortunately, she committed suicide at the age of 21. To be honest with you, besides being terribly sad and disappointed, she was a lovely girl. I was amazed because I hadn't realized just how how pained, how much suffering that she must have been going through. I I had discounted that pain and thought that, you know, like most people going through adolescence, that it's a tough time, but, you know, you'll get over it and life gets slightly simpler. My naivety was something I felt I, ha- I had to address. And I started studying mental health problems and the rise in them. And it's not just in the young people, but it's probably more acutely felt by young people. In the UK, 
mental health problems provoke massive suicide. Suicide in men in the UK is the biggest killer of men between the ages of, I think it's 21 and 55 or some such. I couldn't believe these numbers. The one thing that I recognize is that many of the pressures that society creates are unnecessary. For example, we increasingly live in much denser cities, much denser populations in um, the middle of big cities. And that's because that's where the wealth has been created in the past. And I say in the past, and that's largely because the pandemic has proved beyond all previous research that it is possible to work remotely, not necessarily to work in the same bunch of cubes and in the same shiny towers in the middle of big metropolitan areas. So we can potentially reduce the human density in our cities. We can give people living spaces with gardens in them or places they can walk and take away the pressures of commuting, all of which will contribute to improved mental health. There have been a lot of studies that have shown that universal basic income is something that alleviates the pressure of just feeding your family in some cases. You know, the rise of people living in food poverty and relying on food banks, um, which have been closed in the pandemic. This isn't the way for civilized society, rich countries to live. And so universal basic income takes away some of that strain and stress and has been political dynamite in the past. There have been many people who have said, we can't afford it, it's crazy, it won't work. Well, actually, in the United States, that tide of opinion is apparently changing. There's a big piece in The the Economist uh, recently that was – giving some statistical evidence to the fact that opinions are changing. And there's this recognition that universal basic income isn't enough to kind of live a, a fancy life, but at least it's enabling people to live uh, uh, without starving in, in a rich country. So I, I think there are changes that are already on track that will see society improve there's obviously going to be pain and grief and if you're working in entertainment or hospitality the chances are you may well lose your job whilst new jobs are being created and i'm not trying to trivialize the fact that the uh, transition will be burdensome painful but my optimism is based on the fact that i think we're going to look much more clearly about how we can all live together in a safer, more harmonious fashion without structuring society based purely on an econometric model. I would love to have the gross domestic product replaced by the sort of gross joy outcome or some other acronym that enabled all of us to look at how we might be improving the lot of humanity generally. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's been a beautiful world to think forward uh, into the future of us thinking about our fulfillment and our well-being. 
up and above finances. I wanted to say real quick, though, too, I wanted to offer my condolences in relation to your niece. I'm terribly sorry to hear about that tragedy. Suicide, of course, is something that is a terrible circumstance that much of the world faces. So I'm so sorry to hear that for you and your family. But we think forward into the future, this more beautiful future where we reduce our level of stress, improve our well-being, and focus on those areas that bring us joy and bring us fulfillment. It doesn't necessarily mean you're pointing to this utopian future, (laughs) but it's a future that is more natural to our being as people. Because the reality is, is our current world is not conducive to our human nature and how we're built, which is why so many of us are struggling the way that we are. So I am hopeful for that future that you outlined for us because it sounds quite beautiful. So Rod Banner, I want to really thank you for this amazing conversation. I really appreciate you joining me today. Well, I, I hope I've done justice to the topic and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And thank you so much for inviting me. You're more than welcome. Rod's mission to create more joy in the world is inspiring. After a deeply difficult tragedy, he initiated a meaningful mission to create more joy in this world. He doesn't turn away from the fact that people are struggling and how our rapidly changing world is contributing to a mental health crisis. Through JoyTech, he faces the issue head-on, and this project is likely saving lives. On this show, we often explore the importance of considering our human experience, now and in the future. I certainly don't need to tell you that we are facing significant disruption and turmoil in society today. Based on a July 2020 poll by the Kaiser Family Foundation, over 50% of U.S. adults report that their mental health has declined due to the pandemic. It amounted to a 21% increase from the early stages of the pandemic in March of 2020. That is staggering and concerning. As we face the reality of decreasing joy, Rod reminds us of something very important. We have reason for hope. For instance, by exploring and applying partnerism, we can find ways to work together better, care for each other more, and strive to work together to solve the biggest problems that our society faces. We can also look into our political structures and organizational structures and consider how to simply look out for one another better, from our neighbors to our employees and our customers. A world with more joy is not trivial. I would argue that the pursuit of more joy is more important than the pursuit of more prosperity. And it is a pursuit that all of us can join, that all of us can change, and from which all of us can benefit. It will not only improve the quality of our lives, but it will also save lives. So I hope you are able to find some joy today and in your future. And I challenge you to join the pursuit of creating more joy in this world. Please join me on Twitter or Instagram at Humans Now and Then to discuss how you will create more joy in the world today. That will certainly create joy for me. And while you're at it, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about the JoyTech Project, please go to joytech.org. That's J-O-Y-T-E-C-H dot org. You can also learn more about partnerism at partnerism.org. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. 
hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Resources and episode notes can be found at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.